Okay, so welcome everyone to this week's uh, uh, Media Agenda Talks. Um, we've been doing a lot of talk about culture this week. Uh, we've been doing a lot of talk in the last couple of weeks about culture and also about economics of culture, but also the influence of culture beyond the narrow field of cultural life or cultural production. And we have a brilliant speaker to actually uh, show us an amazing case where we see the culture at its best, but also the culture at its best influence and effect beyond the immediate field of the artistic production and consumption. So I'm just here to uh, introduce Ruth Mackenzie, who is our extinguished speaker for today. Ruth was the director of the London 2012 Cultural Olympiad, a huge event that took place in parallel and at the same time as the London Olympics. Some of you might have attended a few events, and I wouldn't be surprised because it's estimated that about 16 million people across the UK have been involved. And I can testify that because I've been in a few of those events, organized or inspired by uh, Ruth's initiative. And she's here to talk to us about the way art links to this major event and under the title, What Has Art Got to Do with Sport? So I leave the floor to her. She will speak for about half an hour and then, of course, we'll open the floor for questions and comments from you. Thank you. <coughs> Thank you. And thank you very much. Is that okay? Can you hear me at the back? Yeah. Yes, thank you. Um, so what has art got to do with sport? I'm, I'm just going to start with a couple of facts. Uh, so the most obvious thing is that when the Olympic Games started in ancient Greece, actually they were a, uh, a chance to celebrate artists as well as athletes. So I guess in the origins of the Olympics is the idea of artists and sports people celebrating and working together. Um, but in the modern days, of course, most people think that the Olympics is about sports. And certainly when I became the director of the Cultural Olympiad, uh, it seemed quite a daunting task. Uh, what has art got to do with sport? How do we live up to what slightly annoyingly, if you come from the arts, they call the greatest show in the world? That's what we do, right? The greatest show in the world. That's not what sports people do. So how, how were we to come up with a cultural program that might match up to the sport. Um, I'm going to show you a few examples of the path we took uh, and particularly some of the innovations, some of the things that maybe have, uh, have some relevance beyond the world of a once-in-a-lifetime event when the Olympic and Paralympic Games come to your country. Um, but what we ended up doing, uh, as you heard, was uh, a program that that I'm mostly going to talk about its finale, the London 2012 Festival, that actually reached 19.8 attendances are our latest figures. And of those 19.8 million attendances, 16.5 million attendances were free. So 3.3 paid tickets and 16.5 free. Uh, it covered every single art form, and unusually for a festival, it covered the whole of the UK, if you think about a festival, sensible festivals happen in fields, uh, like Glastonbury, they happen in cities. Um, they don't happen in entire countries. In fact, I can't find a model of a successful festival in an entire country. I'll leave it for you to judge whether I created one this time. So, um, uh, what, we, what we decided when we started programming the London 2012 Festival was that we needed to find some hooks to match up to that once-in-a-lifetime uh, 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 challenge of the sport. And one of our major hooks was to commission artists to create new things, because at least if it's new, then it's the first time in a life. Uh, and to create things that we genuinely felt could not have happened in other years. But for some artists, they were quite interested to have uh, a, a sort of starting point that was slightly more specific to the Olympics. And one of our most inspiring points was the idea of Olympic truce. So um, I didn't know this, maybe you guys all did, but back in ancient Greece, um, all of the nation states agreed to stop fighting in order to travel safely to the games and enjoy the artists as well as the sports people, as we were discussing a minute ago. And until now, uh, the United Nations in the modern Olympics has a resolution before every Olympic Games asking everyone to stop fighting 
in order to come and watch the sport and in this case also listen to the artists and enjoy the artists. So that notion of Olympic truce, of everybody stopping fighting, uh, is a very inspiring point for many artists. The artists have got a fantastic record in working for peace um, and in communicating and celebrating uh, peace. Um, And what you see here is a commission by Deborah Warner, the theatre director, working with Fiona Shaw, the actress. Uh, It's a simple thing called Peace Camp. It happened in uh, nine beaches around the UK. Um, This is one in Northern Ireland, actually. And it popped up just for four days. Um, And for four days, you could uh, could wander freely amongst these tents. And in each of these tents, there was a sound installation created by Fiona and some great actors and actresses Uh, And the sound installation offered you some of the greatest love poetry from the United Kingdom over the last 500 years. So a very simple message for peace, Um, a very unusual event, something that those that experienced it enjoyed enormously, something which I think you could probably see looks beautiful. Um, And the notion of peace became one of our sort of themes running through the festival. For me, it's enough that an artist creates something amazing. I don't need it to be about anything. I don't need it to have a theme. But if they wanted it, then Olympic truce was a theme of great beauty for the art. And the other great theme that that inspired us uh, was uh, from the Paralympics, where the incredible um, courage and ability of the Paralympians um, inspired us to create what we believe is the largest commissioning fund in the world for disabled and deaf artists, Um, This is uh, an artist, Sue Austin, and with the money that we commissioned her with, she um, developed, as you can see, uh, a wheelchair to work underwater, and she created choreography and films. Remarkable work, really extraordinary. Um, I think that what we perceived was that just as the Paralympics have transformed the perception of athletes that participated and transformed their opportunities actually so we hoped that we could transform the opportunities for disabled and deaf artists and it's too early to tell whether we have but we certainly invested a great deal in commissioning (coughs) artists both in this country and working internationally to come up with some I think fairly legitimately once in a lifetime uh, pieces Um, so One of our big themes um, was, as you've heard, to offer work for free. Uh, uh, 80% of our work was for free. And I think that this is something that uh, we inherited. It's a bit of a theme in the cultural life of the UK. In a former life, uh, I worked in the Department of Culture, Media and Sport at the time when we uh, had to change the law to um, get a new clause into the Finance Act to enable our great national museums to go free. Um, and uh, the rest is history. Those, those national museums have increased their attendance by over 500%. They are now the top tourist attractions uh, in London, for example, are Tate Modern and the British Museum, the Natural History Museum, the V&A. It's a phenomenal um, success in terms of how policy has changed practice. Um, but this notion of offering for free seemed to us to be really important Uh, for uh, an environment where we knew that the economic downturn might make it difficult for everybody to enjoy the Olympics and to take part in the summer of 2012. So what you see here is Jay-Z, and Jay-Z was top of the bill for the BBC One Hackney Radio One weekend. Um, 100,000 free tickets in a specially made site and Hackney Marshes. Uh, a fantastic uh, uh, sort of background of training for young people, uh, a lot of work to ensure that local young people got access to tickets, a lineup, an incredible lineup, Rihanna, Jay-Z, Florence and the Machine, I mean, incredible, I won't go on. Uh, but this was just part of our free program. And for me, the interesting thing about free is not just, you know, did we enable you to see your heroes for free, but also... Here is a way in which we could introduce you to emerging talent, to young artists, to things that you hadn't heard of. Because if it's free, the barriers are down. There's one, you know, it's much easier to get people to donate their time, to come and have a punt, 
to see something that they actually don't know about. So, for example, a very well-known artist in Germany, not well-known here, is Tino Segal. And Tino Segal was uh, uh, commissioned by the Tate Modern for the London 2012 Festival in the Turbine Hall. Over a million people saw his work for free this summer. And that's his largest piece. It's his largest audience. It's life-changing for him. It was a remarkable piece. And I'm sure for some that saw it, it'll be something that you know, will stay with them forever. I don't think you could have done that if you had charged people to come and see Tino Segal. You just wouldn't have had that impact. So for me, the, the, the freeness of much of our festival is something that I think offers some really significant policy lessons for the future, um, but also something that enabled me as the curator, as the programmer of the festival, to take some risks, ironically, you know, to, to offer you artists from all around the world that weren't all world-famous names, but who knows, might be world-famous names later on. Now, I'll be talking a bit later about one of the other uh, elements of freeness, which is the pop-up program. But obviously, uh, another of our great features, and you'll have already seen it, was that we took art out of traditional cultural venues. So a lot of the work that we commissioned uh, was in was in a, an unusual place, a, a site that had been created or was being used especially for a piece of art. What you're seeing here is one of our most significant world premieres. Um, Stockhausen wrote seven operas, one for every day of the week. He was like that. Uh, and his favourite one, he didn't write them in order of the day of the week, his favourite one was Wednesday, Mittwoch aus Licht. And it had never been performed, ever. It's considered to be unstageable quite largely because it's five hours long. It has two choirs in it. Um, it needs a camel. Uh, the orchestra have to hang from the ceiling. And most challenging of all, it, it has in the middle of it the helicopter quartet where you need four real helicopters, one with each string instrument in them, and they circle around uh, your venue and you live mix the sound of the helicopters and the sound of the string quartet into the audience. That bit actually has been performed before, but the rest of the opera, the whole five and a half hours has never been performed until this summer as part of the 2012 festival in Birmingham. This is a, a factory and it was a site especially created for this opera. Um, and what I think was significant for this opera is that it was an event not just in a particular site but something that required the whole of the community to come together. So it required Birmingham City Council, it required the planning people, the traffic people, the local airport. Actually, we have the Birmingham police tweeting during rehearsals saying, if you're worried about these helicopters circling in the city centre, don't worry, it's just a new opera. Um, I'm proud of that tweet, I kept it. Because it's not often, actually, and it's a tribute, I think, that the police were so, you know, was, were part of the team. Uh, but as well as using factories, which after all isn't that unusual, uh, we we used natural landmarks. This is Hadrian's Wall, 73 miles long. Um, the Yes, Yes, No Collective from New York uh, created their largest, longest ever piece of digital art. It had its real-life barrage balloons, which you could manipulate dip digitally from around the world. You could send a message. They're the little funny white things. You can see them. They change color. Um, and it went from one coast, from the west coast to the east coast, uh, 70, 73 miles, it um, practically killed them. Uh, this is another one, Stonehenge. It's a French company called Carabos. Um, again, like Hadrian's Wall, this required the most incredible um, uh, complexity of permissions, if you like, of partnerships. Hadrian's Wall, by the way, there were 120 landowners that all had to agree to the Yes, Yes, No collective creating a piece of work on their land. Uh, this is a World Heritage site. They don't normally allow anyone to, uh, to, to touch it except for the Druids once a year. Um, certainly, they discourage people setting fire to it, um, which is what the company Carabos did. It's called a fire garden. Uh, pretty, I'm pretty sure that's once in a lifetime because it practically killed us all to get those permissions. This is um, in Northern Ireland. It's called the, land, it's called the Giant's Causeway. And Hans Peter Kuhn has created... Uh, um, 150 they, they look tiny they're actually rather large sculptures that change colour in the wind they're called flags which for anyone that knows anything about Northern Ireland flags are uh, are pretty contested um, 
uh, and this was this was a chance to take one of one of the most famous tourist landmarks in the UK and ask an artist to make you look at it in a different way, um, which is what happened over and over again during the festival. Again, for free, uh, again, quite um, surprising. Um, this is a, an Argentinian artist called Constanza Macras. She created uh, a piece in a forest in North Wales, um, a beautiful piece in a beautiful forest, actually, but a forest that... Uh, that that uh, that had a bad reputation. You know, it was it was better known for for drug dealing um, and violence. But she turned it into a place of absolute beauty. Um, uh, I showed you already one beach. That's another beach. It's Dunstanburg in Northumberland. And again, this time you can see some people. Uh, and this one is in Belfast Zoo, and it's it's a version of Noah's Flood. Um, and uh, the story of Noah's Flood, you'll know, is, is you know, Noah rescues all the animals. The, this is an opera by Benjamin Britten, but it's a partnership with the Beijing Music Festival uh, and the Katie Wong Foundation, so that the designs are actually inspired by Chinese uh, lanterns. Um, and this, I've just come back from Beijing, where this production played again in Beijing, but with a majority of Chinese young people uh, in the orchestra and in the choir. We played it in Belfast at the zoo, which is a great place to do uh, a piece about animals. And this kind of segues in for me to, um, to another of our great themes. So if we found that using unusual places, again, was kind of liberating, you know, you're not in the, in the, in the firm tribal camp of, a, of the art zone. You're in a, a neutral place, a place that doesn't belong to anyone. Belfast Zoo, Hadrian's Wall, Stonehenge, these are different places, beaches. They're places that anyone feels they can go to uh, to see something that we hoped would be extraordinary and memorable. Another of our important themes, though, was that you didn't just come to see, you came to do, so that you could, if you wish, develop your own creative skill. These young people learnt this music, they, they helped make these lanterns, they worked on this piece, they weren't just passive, they were active. Um, this is another wonderful example. Uh, that this is the conductor, Gustavo Dudamel. He comes from Venezuela, where he's the product of something called the system. Sounds rather sort of fierce. But 30 years ago, uh, the system started in the favelas of Venezuela, especially for young people who didn't have places where they could learn and practice a musical instrument because they lived in quite deprived circumstances. So they all learnt stringed instruments and practiced together. And out of that emerged... Uh, an incredible flowering of self-esteem, of confidence, of all the things that we know learning um, a creative skill gives you. But particularly also, some of them turned out to be quite outstanding. The Simon Bolivar Youth Orchestra, Gustavo Dudamel, who's now the youngest conductor of the Los Angeles Philharmonic. Here he is, teaching young people in uh, a social housing estate in Stirling in Scotland, Ratlock. Um, and his Simon Bolivar Orchestra have come to meet the young people of Raplock. They did a concert for the opening day of our, of our London 2012 festival for 6,000 audience, plus everyone that the BBC broadcast to. You can see them rehearsing here. Uh, this, is, uh, this is a partnership between 34,000 children and Ardman. Ardman, who make Wallace and Gromit. So 34,000 children learnt to do animation. They worked with Ardman, and they produced a film. Um, and this is it. It's called The Itch of the Golden Knit. Surprisingly, it's very funny. Because um, you wouldn't think, would you, that 34,000 children could come up with a sort of coherent narrative. But thanks to Wardman, they do. Uh, again, they worked with the BBC. They worked with the Tate, uh, which is why it's called Tate Movie. It's a project where we won't really know the results for 20 years. We know that 34,000 children had a good time, and now loads and loads of other children enjoy watching the film. I, I hope that we've produced some animators and some talented young people who will become leaders, you know, of animation in 20 years' time, but who knows. And then this one, finally, um, Damon Albarn uh, is one of the founders. There he is in the middle of Africa Express. It's over 70 musicians. They come from Africa, they come from America, they come from Europe. Um, they insisted on having a train, a real train, um, and going around the country. Uh, and they would just, they, they broke all the rules, actually. I love them to bits. They would just stop, stop and, and go and, and split up into little groups 
uh, and go off and find communities and pop up in schools and do some jamming with local young people and then every night they did a concert. Uh, so they went all over the country in this real train on real lines. Um, uh, I had never believed they could do it. They broke every single rule of the railways and every single rule of organising community activity. Uh, and of course it was an absolutely massive hit because they were just fantastic and everybody wanted to work with them. Um, you know, that's it, for me, that's the sort of gold dust of once in a lifetime, is that for those young people who got to play with this group in Middlesbrough, uh, I don't suppose they'll have anything quite as good again in Middlesbrough, but um, maybe that's our job to make sure that I'm proved wrong. Um, and this, that leads me to my final section, which is pop-up. Um, and one of the things that we wanted to experiment with in this festival... Uh, is uh, the idea that as well as having a brochure or a website, planning events long in advance, opening the booking, you know, doing all the things that every festival does, we wanted to have some surprises. Um, and we wanted just to test whether we could be a digital festival and work really at the last minute. I love this one. This is a life-size Stonehenge. So you saw the real Stonehenge being set on fire earlier. This is by Jeremy Della, the artist. Um, and it's a life-size inflatable Stonehenge. So uh, this was a pop-up event in the sense that we did not advertise in advance where it was going. And I think it's particularly amusing that you don't advertise something as enormous as a Stonehenge, which you've got to then inflate. You know, it took a morning to inflate. It went all over the UK. It's now going all over the world. It's uh, a joy. And as you can see, gymnasts, but also just anyone of any age, made an absolute fool of themselves on it. Um, we closed Piccadilly Circus for the first time since VE Day. Uh, and turned it into a circus, because that's what the name suggested. So we created Piccadilly Circus Circus, uh, which was free, um, and anyone could come, and there were circus acts all over that traffic roundabout, because there was no traffic, and down Piccadilly, down, lower, down Regent Street. And then in the evening, we had an aerial circus above everyone's heads, and these angels started a pillow fight, you can see here, um, which then dropped one and a half tons of feathers. Uh, that's um, an extraordinary, I mean, an extraordinary event. I've never seen grown-ups, 100,000 grown-ups, just playing with feathers for hours. Uh, so it's a lot of setup. but once you've dropped the feathers, that's it, you can go home, job done. This was another pop-up event. As you can see, these events were quite ambitious um, and took quite a bit of organisation. These are people, and they're on the London Eye, uh, and they're uh, doing acrobatics on the London Eye. They're, they're um, choreographed by Elizabeth Streb, another New Yorker, uh, and her, this is her Extreme Action Company. Uh, they're hundreds of metres high. Um, it was remarkable. They did acts of daring all day. This was their final effort. Um, that's earlier in the day. Uh, walking down, which is incredibly difficult, actually, uh, the middle one's Elizabeth Streb herself, who is in her 60s, so it's never too late to learn how to risk life and death. Um, and that, actually, uh, is where I'm going to pause, because one of the interesting things about these pop-ups is that I learnt that you could, in fact, trust to the power of friends and partners. So uh, we were only allowed to tell people about Piccadilly Circus Circus and one extraordinary day, the Elizabeth Streb project, a day before. So we could do some teasing. Uh, we could uh, we could uh, encourage people to sign up, um, so they'd be the first to know. And we could tell. We told people about Elizabeth Streb. We didn't tell them what they'd do or when, but we had a day to tell people. So we had, of course, the power of London 2012, which had only over six million email addresses. We had the Twitter accounts for London 2012 and London 2012 Festival. We had the Twitter accounts for the Mayor of London, who is followed by a lot of people. We had Twitter accounts for BBC uh, and for celebrities, for friends. So Stephen Fry or Yoko Ono uh, or Eddie Izzard would tweet for us. And, of course, as you know, the, the best way to market anything is word of mouth. So, actually, we had the way of uh, just getting all of our friends and all of our friends' friends and all of our partners, cultural partners, to start putting the word out, as well, of course, as using local radio, local television and old-fashioned print. 
um, for the last sort of uh, 24 hours. But what I found absolutely liberating was the way in which, um, thanks to sort of the might of the Olympics, we could actually risk experimenting in this way. Um, it's not new. Many, many cultural organizations try this as a sort of backup. Too often, I think, in my view, they use it as a, you know, a last-minute to try and sell things that haven't sold well. We used it as a deliberate policy to see if we could land a digital games, digital not just in marketing but also with some of the content, and just to see if we could use the, the summer of playing to play a bit. Uh, I'll be interested to know what you think about it. But so that's just a very quick uh, uh, canter through some of the kind of new things that we try to do um, and some of the things that maybe have, you know, maybe might have a life beyond 2012 because obviously once in a lifetime we've just done it. Um, I think that one of the sort of interesting points to end up with is, well, uh, that word legacy, it's a terrible word. I hate it because it sounds like we're dead, you know, and then we just left something for you. And we're not. We're all alive and well. But uh, what, what is there that we, can, we might hope to see happening as a result of what we've achieved? What, what we managed to get was an extraordinary amount of media coverage. We're still appraising that. Um, but, you know, we knew that we were going to get 40,000 journalists from around the world over the summer of 2012 and that more than half of them would not have passes to go and see the sport. So they would, in fact, be ours. We could show them the culture, we could show them our landscape, we could take them outside London, we could tell them a story about the UK and talent from around the world. Uh, we knew we had a chance to celebrate diversity of talent from all around the world, and that's been fantastic, and to celebrate young people. So what are the threats, though, going forward? Well, maybe if Gove gets his way and we remove the performing arts and art, visual art from the curriculum, maybe we don't get to have exciting generations of ordinary young people who are ready to participate and test out their talent, whether playing the violin with Gustavo Dudamel or learning animation with the Ardman brothers. Maybe that means that we don't have the same richness of input for the creative industries. You know, our boast was that we're world-leading in the creative industries and culture and Actually, of course, as with sport, that requires a lot of depth. You need to have a lot of participation at the young people, at school and at uh, educational levels if you're going to get the outstanding talent emerging. Just as with athletes, it doesn't, it doesn't happen unless you've got your base. Um, I, I, would, I would say we've got a crisis ahead if we really do start excluding ordinary young people from being part of that base. So maybe actually it isn't that art and sport are kind of against each other. It's that they both have the same sort of core needs. They both have the need for participation um, and talent development at a young age. They both have the ability to inspire. And quite often, you know, the most talented young people uh, want to do sport and they want to be, you know, musicians or they want to have, they have a creative talent. But... Oh, Equally, those that are not interested in sport often are interested in the creative industries. It's, it's the way of aspiration and ambition for many young people. It's something that isn't governed by academic performance. It's governed by talent development, actually, and determination. So what we had this summer was the chance to show off our skills around the world, to show that we could put on a fantastic games, good ceremonies, a marvelous, you know, some marvellous festival events, I hope, We've showcased artists that are going to carry on around the world. We've offered some young people a chance, and we've managed to give, uh, I hope, 19.8 million people, you know, a good day out at least. Um, what next? Well, that's something we can discuss now. But for now, um, that's the end of my presentation, and I'll open up for questions. Thank you. so much. Um, I think that was a fascinating presentation and I'm sure you have loads of questions to follow. Um, but just to kick off, um, as you left us with this open question about 
you know, our aspirations about culture and the realities of culture. Let me first ask you about the realities of how you de dealt with these challenges during the event. Um, we saw that you brought many uh, forms of art and culture that were usually associated with high culture, such as opera, theater, artistic installations. You brought them out of that uh, space which is usually um, associated with high culture. So how did you manage to work this out? And did you actually manage to speak and to engage with wider audiences who might not have otherwise engaged with such forms of art? We're still doing the analysis, but the um, initial audience figures suggest that 35% of the attendances were in the 16 to 24-year-old age bracket. Now, for those that organize festivals, especially those at the high art end, that is gold dust. Um, uh, for example, in the West Midlands, where they've done sort of detailed um, analysis of attendances, the, uh, the class demography, it absolutely mirrors the, the uh, population of the West Midlands. So if in traditional concert halls you'd expect more ABs than C2DEs, in, in our attendances where we mirror the population. Um, and the same with um, uh, ethnic minority culturally diverse or audiences and in fact we're ahead on those that, um, that define themselves as disabled. So the initial findings are really exciting for me um, in terms of um, attendances that there are other specific examples so for example the Globe Theatre which I didn't talk about who had 38 Shakespeare's from around the world in 38 different languages 80% of their attendances were first time theatre goers, people who'd never been to the Globe before um, that, that wasn't a free programme, but in fact you could get in for £5, which was pretty good. Uh, so we've got more work to do. Our final evaluation comes out in the spring, but the earlier indications are that some of these devices appear to have worked. And if we think about then what this experience, what the realities and what is really uh, great successes actually to use culture as a way to talk across difference show you um, I would like to ask you about those challenges and the policy implications that you uh, highlighted in your presentation so what would you say to your colleagues or to the people who make decisions about culture and art it's an interesting thing isn't it I mean that artists are always quite perverse you know so that if you say to an artist uh, which of course any good festival director does you say to Deborah Warner this is a once in a lifetime chance you can do anything you like what would you like to do um, she says I don't want to do a theatre piece in a theatre I don't want to do an opera I want to do something different I want to do something simultaneously in nine beaches that are as remote and impossible to get to as it's possible to find in the whole of the country but I think what's um, uh, quite problematic for those working in, in cultural policy is well, what, what do you do with, these, uh, with this infrastructure of theatres and concert halls and opera houses in the next 20 years? You know, we spent the last 20 years refurbishing a lot of them. They're in great great nick. But actually, if you look at attendances, galleries are doing incredibly well, museums are doing well. Why is that? I would argue it's because they're free. Um, so, again, that's sort of made them, you know, accessible, friendly spaces that you can drop into in a way that you don't drop into uh, your local theatre. Um, I mean, you know, this is very contentious, and this is just kind of policy blue skies. But I think, I think we have created a problem, you know, if you believe in the success of doing incredible events that are free, that are in unusual places... Uh, what's normal life then? Because the, this, the, this once-in-a-lifetime experience is great, but then what do you do for your bread and butter if you are a cultural provider every week, every month? Um, I'm not sure that sort of normal practice is, you know, is, is working as well as it might. Uh, and I think maybe we've given ourselves some food to think. I, it, it was very interesting for me working on the free museums policy to realize uh, th that actually economically um, it's a benign policy uh, you know you what you lose for, as a country what you lose in charging people for their tickets you gain 
in getting extra cultural tourists, in getting extra secondary spend, in getting extra, you know, extra um, value from those visitors who attend those museums. Um, and I wonder if there's a, you know, there's some uh, modelling that we could do that extends that that notion of freeness uh, outside those museums into other areas of the creative industries and the arts. So it is a challenge, but it's also a legacy, even though if you don't like the world. Uh, I think it, there's something there, as you said. An opportunity, absolutely. Um, let's open the floor now and take your questions, please. Yes. you're a bit quick to give up on what we might be losing so uh, uh, and I think the model doesn't really stack up I mean Latitude is a brilliant example and Latitude you know is incredibly innovative as a festival and as you say it's invited theatres it's invited uh, literature it's invited a lot of um, stuff that sort of has changed the map of what festivals can offer but it's invited stuff that relies upon a, a, a complex fabric of subsidy. So, you know, Latitude doesn't pay Payne's Plough or the Royal Court Theatre to go there, but uh, every, every person who pays tax has paid the Royal Court and Payne's Plough. You know, they get money from the Arts Council, they get, they get their subsidy that enables them to use Latitude as an opportunity, and they're right to use Latitude as an opportunity, of course. But I don't think that... Uh, I don't think those festivals offer a kind of long-term model. I think you've you've got to th- you know you've got to think about uh, how how you grow the talent um, and how you grow the work. You know, a lot of uh, a lot of the talent that festivals enjoy has not sprung from nowhere. But on the other hand, there's a lot of you know we're we're only at the beginning. I think of crowdsourcing. We're only at the beginning of sort of using the way in which individuals can help. Uh, can help invest rather than just just purchase at the end as consumers. I mean, I feel really, you know, idiotic in the LSE of all places, sort of talking bollocks about economics. But um, this is something where I, I think that we it's time, isn't it? When, you know, when times get hard, it's time to start thinking quite creatively about models. And the models are not as straightforward as all I'm suggesting. You know, you wouldn't think that giving up the income from tickets would turn out to be uh, uh, an economic plus. But I think we now have the evidence to show that it is. So I don't think... So you wouldn't think that, you know, doing work on beaches and closing traffic islands and, you know, that that would prove to be a good way of uh, marketing the UK. But interestingly, a lot of that investment to make those events happen came from tourist boards and from local authorities' marketing budgets... So it came from non-cultural budgets. But, you know, I wouldn't argue that having these incredible pictures going around the world for, for, for years was a, an incredibly good way to spend a marketing budget. Um, Piccadilly Circus Circus is from the Mayor of London's marketing budget. and It's worth every penny. Any other questions or comments? Okay, this is a depressing answer. So, uh, as it happens, I studied English literature, so that's useless, you know. Um, 
incredibly enjoyable, and I wouldn't do anything different. But it, it's it can't be said that at any stage of my career anyone asked me what I studied. Um, uh, I think that probably in the early stages of my career, people were encouraged that I got a degree. You know, that shows that sort of commitment and uh, and sort of application. But I don't think that the topics was was particularly um, important. Um, my uh, I've worked most of my life running festivals or running arts institutions, um, so you can see that that's sort of useful. And I've worked across most of the arts, so uh, you know, so performing arts and visual arts. But I've also worked for government and worked in policy, and that was useful too because this is the sort of job where you get a lot of pressure from what we politely call stakeholders. But that's everybody from you know number ten Downing Street to the Secretary of State from Culture to you know to every to every local politician to everybody who thinks that their reputation hangs on uh, us having a good idea and pulling it off. And in that job, uh, working in government was was awfully useful for me. I think the basic job of a festival producer is to protect the artists. You know, the artists are not the people who can explain why their ideas are going to be good. It's people like us who have to explain how we trust the artists because there is nothing, nothing that that uh, anyone saw and thought was good in the festival would happen without an artist having a fantastic idea. Um, and, you know, although, of course, every good every artist doesn't have a good idea every time, there are no good ideas that don't start and end with brilliant artists. So it's a risk you have to take, um, and it's our job to protect those artists. And that's the hardest thing, and that comes from experience, really. Um, and a lot of that is, you know, is, uh, is about looking very confident, actually. So it's about looking very confident and saying, don't worry, it's going to be absolutely fantastic. You know, and then you wake up in the middle of the night screaming. <laughs> yeah. Uh, two very good questions. I'll answer the second one first. The data, of course, um, London Organising Committee for the Olympic Games, who are my bosses, um, goes out of business by March. You know, mostly, uh, most people are already redundant. 50% um, of the staff were redundant the day after the Olympics finished. It's, it's these OCOGs, organising committees, have, have, don't have afterlives. They are you know, enormous operations and they just vanish. So, their data is a really important subject because, of course, uh, those six million email addresses are invaluable. I mean, there's, all of these people are invaluable. Um, the Arts Council are negotiating to to try and take on those people that you know that have ticked the right boxes um, as they signed on to London 2012. And of course, quite a lot of them have already moved on to other cultural partners through the events programme that the London 2012 Festival offered. Um, but that's not a satisfactory answer. Uh, and it's one of those things where you go, OK, we sh you know, I, I wish the Arts Council and London 2012 had worked out the answer to this three years ago because we've now got weeks to work it out. And for those of you who know, uh, it's, a, you know it's a complex business um, and quite rightly, it, individuals 
rights who are on who sign up to things like London 2012, you know, are, are protected. So, will that have a happy end? Don't know. Um, the first question: How do you how do you do a pop up event? Well, that's what we just tested, uh, and um, uh, and I already described when I talked about how you know how you you can do some teasing, you can do some warming up. We, of course, had the might of London 2012, but I, I tried to stress that we also just had... I realised that it was more about ingenuity and kind of creativity of partnership. So I don't want you to think that you have to have, you know, the BBC, the Mayor of London, and six million people with London 2012, the biggest brand in the world, in order to try a pop-up event. I think, I think what I've learned is that, in fact, Eddie Izzard you know, will be just as good. Um, or Yoko Ono, you know, who has a couple of million followers. I mean, that, but that also, what we, one of the times we trended on Twitter was uh, with Martin Creed's piece called uh, Ring All the Bells As Loudly As You Can, um, which opened uh, the 27th of July. 2.9 million people rang bells all around the UK for Martin Creed, led by Big Ben in the House of Commons, which I, I have to just quickly boast about. It was one of my, I think, big triumphs that I managed to get uh, permission for Big Ben to start going bong at 12 minutes past eight. Um, and Big Ben, as you know, doesn't normally go bong at 12 minutes past eight. Um, it goes bong at quarter past eight. The last time it went bong off schedule, as I've learned to say, was in 1952 when George VI died. So I think we did pretty well getting Big Ben to go bong just for a piece of art. But um, all, the, I mean, all the bells, this project of everyone doing bell ringing trended on Twitter, and that wasn't because it was sort of top-down, large-scale institutions that were tweeting. It was because it was just loads and loads of people, you know, telling each other quite boringly what, what they were doing um, and where um, in terms of making a noise to join in with bell ringing. So it, it's something where actually, you know, social media has the force of, of just, as we know, of just, it, it's us. You know, we could do it. If we all went out now and tweeted the same thing um, to all of our followers, you know, we could, we could make a splash provided something else incredibly exciting isn't happening. Um, I, I learned a lot about just actually, you know, you, you, being able to use your own forces um, to create the power if your event and this is a big if, if your event is genuinely appealing and exciting, so that's the final thing you know, it won't work necessarily for any old event but with most of the pop-up events we found, we found our crowd and we found, you know, a safe crowd with Piccadilly Circus Circus, if we had advertised it in advance we couldn't cope, that's quite a dangerous sight Piccadilly Circus, you know, it doesn't have endless ways in which you can disperse people so the, the police were right to be nervous. We had to leave it to the last minute, and we got... We couldn't accommodate more than 100,000 people playing with feathers. Uh, and, you know, more people enjoying it online. Well, I don't know if they were enjoying it. They were watching it. Thank you. Uh, well, so maybe a few questions. Uh, so can we take... Because we're coming to the end, can we take your three questions together and final comments? I want to know what is the kind of Really good questions. Um, will we do it again? Don't know. Uh, I, I, you know, Jeremy Hunt wanted to, but then he got promoted to health. So that makes it less likely that any other politician will want it, ironically. Um, uh, how do you deal with boundaries? Well, that is my job, actually. Uh, and my job was to say to the artist, one of the great things about the UK is we have artistic freedom. Um, and we have what's known as the arm's length principle, where the artist is allowed to develop their thoughts and perform in freedom. 
Um, and it's my job to make sure that that's true. So that sounds really simple, and of course it's not. But, you know, one, one example was we did a concert of homeless people at the Royal Opera House. There's a wonderful organisation called Streetwise Opera. They've been working with homeless people for years. Most Olympics have got a disgraceful record of, uh, you know, of, uh, allegations about how they get rid of the homeless people during the Games. But um, actually, everybody around me, both London 2012 and the Mayor's Office, everybody was really keen that we showed that we were different um, and that we showed that we wanted to celebrate the talent of homeless people. Um, I think that was a really important um, so it, for me, it was very important never to say to an artist, uh, the Olympics means you can't do this, because I've never said that in my life. And my integrity as a festival director, as a curator, is that I'm here to offer the artist a chance. That doesn't mean I didn't say if I thought they were doing something bad, you know, or something, you know, you have an interactive process as a producer in trying to develop the best idea possible. But... Uh, for us to censor would have been really dangerous. Um, how do you choose? Uh, I think it's, this is the easiest thing to say and the hardest thing for you to believe, which is you have to have confidence as a curator in your own judgment, in your own taste. And, uh, and I, so it, I always say it's like inviting people around for supper or cooking a banquet, you know, you go to the market, you see what's fresh, what's good, you see what you feel like, you, you want to get a balance, so you can't have six fish courses, you know, you've got to think about having a pudding and having something to start with. Um, you know, so sometimes you say no to something which is a really good fish, but you've already got five fish. So it, it's, it's, that sounds as silly as, uh, as anything, but it, it's down to... Uh, a process of, you know, personal judgment, really. Um, and it's, of course, it, people tend to want to hide behind application processes or rules or themes or uh, whatever. But the truth is, you look at the great festivals, you look at Glastonbury, you know, you look at Latitude, you look at the Green Man, you look at uh, Salzburg, you look at... Uh, um, the Edinburgh International Festival in a good year, you can see the, the flavour, you can, you can taste, you know, you can taste the taste. So uh, that's really unhelpful, but uh, it's worth believing in yourself, you know. You do it in, in most of your life. You do it with your wardrobe. You do it when you, go, when you choose what you're going to go out and pay good money to see. You do it when you're going to a restaurant and looking at the menu. It's no difference. We've had an amazing hour, um, a real-life uh, experience, a real uh, amazing case study to think about some of the big questions we've been addressing in relation to culture. So thinking perhaps in relation to th those big keywords, hegemony, counter-hegemony, but also creativity and freedom. So I want to thank Ruth uh, on behalf of the department and all of you. Here.